Welcome to the Total Car Score Podcast, bringing you the world of cars from inside the car. And now your hosts, Carl Brower, Lauren Fix, and Javier Mota. Well, welcome to another episode of the Total Car Score Podcast with uh, Carl Brower and Lauren Fix. And if there was any doubt about that the future in the automotive industry is electric, this week was the proof of that. <laughs> right, Lauren? I mean, like Jeep, Jeep electric, uh, Grand Rounder electric, everything electric. How are you? I, I'm great. You know what? I think Carl will agree that although all these cool electric cars are coming out, including the Hummer and all these great vehicles, no one's buying them. And, and I'm hearing even stuff with like the RAV4 Prime. They're bringing in 100 vehicles. Sounds like they're trying to avoid EPA penalties to me. Okay, Carl, you just said something last week that really stuck with me. And that was like the, the, the fact that an electric vehicle can be engineered so much. I mean, at some point, like all of them are going to be exactly the same. They're going to look a little bit different. The performance is going to be pretty much the same. I mean, like fast acceleration, quiet uh, driving experience. But after that, I don't know. I mean, what, what do you see in this trend? Well, I think that's what's going to be interesting to watch is to see what the automakers do to try to build distinctive personality into their electric vehicles because by default they won't have any you're just going to have a quiet torquey uh you know no vibration or harsh harshness uh you have electric assisted for everything all the controls the brakes the the um steering everything's gonna be electric assisted obviously so this idea that you've got the bmw feel or the porsche feel or the Ford feel that, that has become somewhat trademark for a lot of these companies for their buyers, uh, especially the fans of the, of the companies, that's all going to get kind of watered down by default. Now, the flip side is you can engineer and tune things very specifically once you're using electric for everything. So you can tune the weight of the steering, the weight of the pedals, you know, how, much, how, how, much, how the brake modulation feels. Uh, you can even tune the noise, right? And there's all sorts of discussion. Uh, the... Um, the Polestar 2 that I drove a couple of weeks ago, that has a very distinctive low speed sound because, you know, federally you have to have uh, as a law, a noise that the cars make below around 15 miles per hour for people who are like vision impaired because they wouldn't know the car. You, you know, you, a, vision, a vision impaired person could be walking across the parking lot and have no idea that you step into front of an electric car because there's no way to hear it coming. So uh, Polestar worked hard to have a distinct kind of cool sounding low speed noise that these cars uh, emit. So that it's not just a standard, you know, like beep, 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 but it's like this kind of cooler sounding noise. And I think you're going to see more of that. You're going to see car makers trying to engineer personality back into the cars because the mechanical engineering is sucking it <laughs> out. It's going to essentially remove the personality. Yeah, um, uh, the RAV4 Prime that Lauren mentioned has that distinctive sound. And my neighbor, as I mentioned previously, has one already. One of the very, very few that have one here in Florida or in the U.S., uh, uh, so I, I, I've heard that and it's, it's, it got the attention of people who don't know what it is. Like people like uh, driving around said, like, what, what the hell was that? Like, it's very interesting. Uh, speaking of personality, Jeep introduced the Wrangler for XE, which is not completely electric. It's electrified, but I guess like they're saying it's going to be a better off-road experience with electric. What, what, what do you think about that, Lauren? Well, you know, it's funny. When you think of Jeep, you think of off-road and, you know, daily driver usability. But having these mild hybrid platforms has been something that Audi's been doing for a while and other manufacturers as well. And it gives you better fuel economy. It gives you better off-road acceleration. We see that even in the Venza, which I think we've all driven. 
and is uh, running for SUV of the Year for North American Car and Truck of the Year Awards. But I think that um, it's it's an idea to save money and use electric technology without being plug-in or plug-in if they want the EPA credit for the corporate average fuel economy. You probably hear about that on TV cafe standards. Um, I think it's interesting. Um, I don't know if it's going to be a better experience because really with off-roading, it's about going slow and control and it's not a race car. So I, you know, this is, I don't see how the two of them go hand in hand. So definitely there are advantages in it, but also like things that Carl was, was mentioning about like lack of personality or whatever. But uh, I mean, again, is there any doubt now that this is the future with that? This is where we're going to be seeing more and more because when we had auto shows before COVID, I mean, I remember the last maybe year of that, more than 50% of the new of the new cars were either electric, plug-in hybrid, hybrid. So like, is there any doubt now that this is the future and that we're going to keep seeing this increasing? Well, it's a great question, Javier, because I don't think there's any doubt that the car companies feel pressure and pretty much obligated both culturally and politically and legally to explore the electrified uh, and purely electric world of cars. So we're going to see it happening for those driving forces, if nothing else. But I think as Lauren and I keep saying, does the market want them? You know, it's, it's, it's always interesting when you engineer a product for a market because the market is supposed to use it versus the market is screaming for it. And I don't think anyone, any one of us would say the market is screaming for electric cars. All you got to do is look at the percentage of the market that they hold, which is between, you know, one and a half and, and like 10%, 9% in the best countries. You know, I think certain countries are actually getting up around nine or 10%, but the bulk of countries, it's well below five or less. So are these these countries going to suddenly decide tomorrow that they all love electric cars and they're going to be 40 or 50%. It's going to take a while and it's going to need the infrastructure. There's a lot of challenges. Exactly. Lauren, there's just, there's a lot of challenges to making electric cars a natural demand, you know, the pull that you want when you're creating something versus the push that uh, you're having to try to get it out there and hope people buy. Yeah. But uh, Lauren, can you uh, think of any other parallel in any other industry, maybe where a product that people didn't think they wanted, and then now it's like something that nobody can live without? Maybe the iPhone, I guess. Well, the iPhone was a great idea. What it did is it no longer, as we all carried little PDAs, and then we also had our flip phones. This was a combination of one. So this solved a problem. The, the key to a successful product is solving a problem. Uh, it's not like um, everyone had to go to plastic water bottles from aluminum. And so what they did is they caused problems because now you got all this plastic left over. And what's plastic made out of? Petroleum. So that was forced on us and it's still there. We're all used to water bottles. Some of us, like myself, I drink out of a glass bottle. But the fact is, is that they destroyed the aluminum industry in the process of doing that. So aluminum just found another industry. So it's interesting to watch how when the government gets involved and tries to run anything, whether it be Amtrak or the post office, to name two of them, they just don't get it right. So when the government is demanding electric cars, I can prove to you it doesn't work by looking at China. Here's China. They said, we want electric cars. There's going to be electric cars. Everyone's going to have it. We're going to mandate it by 2025. So people start buying them, but some not as much as they want. So they incentivize it. 
So now people are buying them because of the incentive, not because they want it. They realize now they don't have enough charging stations, and now they don't realize they don't have enough electricity. So now what are they building? Nuclear power plants are looking at blue gas, which we've talked about in other episodes. And right now they put $66 billion into blue gas, which is a combination of hydrogen and uh, it's a process that's done. But the fact is they've done this before in other countries, and then they look at it and go, oh, that wasn't a good idea. Sort of like when they said everyone can have one child in China. Now they're realizing that was not a smart idea. I don't think you have to go to China for that example. I think just in Carl Backyard, I think uh, the L.A. Police Department announced that the fleet of BMW i3s that they just bought recently, like less than a year or two ago, they are for sale because they're not using it or they're not doing the work. Is that right, Carl? Yeah, I know. I, I you know, and that, and that was millions and millions. I think they said they spent something like ten million dollars total between the, buy, the the number of them that they bought and setting them all up and all. It was like a ten million dollar expenditure. I'm sure they got the best deal because you know the government always makes sure they negotiate uh, efficient use of their money. But um, now they're now they're going to have to sell them all because they're not being used. And of course, the joke I made was. Well, that's a lot of battery energy. Maybe they can string them all together in like series and uh, hook them up to the power grid, and then there'll be a place to draw from during brownouts. You know, we have brownouts out here all the time. It's going to get hot this weekend. They're talking about more rolling brownouts. It's like, well, let's just turn them into a giant battery pack for the city. How about that? That story is crazy because, I mean, like, you will think that, that police departments anywhere in the world will make like right decisions. But this is the problem with this electric electrification of the vehicles that nobody really knows. I was watching, I don't know if you know the name Jeremy Rifkin. He has uh, this uh, thesis about the third industrial revolution. And he was talking about how our generation, when our history is written, they're gonna talk about us like the last one that used like the fuel cell, the fuel, uh, the, um, like oil. Uh, and then like everything's gonna change. But like th that was like five years ago when the the, the barrel of uh, oil was like 150 and now see where it is and gas is cheap. So like things can change really quickly too. Well, that's, that's the thing is, you know, it's always hindsight. Don't, you guys all remember, it was not that long ago that we were looking at peak oil and, you know, we're going to run out by a given time. You know, how many times have we heard the scare tactics? You know, I, I, how many things were supposed to have happened to us by 2020? We were supposed to have been dead by ozone layer being gone dead by acid rain, uh, out of oil, living in the Mad Max future of no oil and everyone fighting over what's left. Uh, oil's like the cheapest it's ever been. The U.S. is the biggest manufacturer of it now. We have you know, really no need to bring it from other, other uh, countries. And yet we're still living in this, you know, kind of prepared that took us 20 or 30 years to get into this mindset that if we don't get off oil, we're all going to die. Uh, it's like, well, we're not going to die from having, not having enough you know, and now the question is, well, there's going to be global warming and all these other things, which I think there's still plenty of question about about that, too, although you're not supposed to question it now. But uh, I always like to, to use a line that I saw as a, somebody's signature line on one of the forums I'm in, which I thought was brilliant. The Stone Age didn't end because we ran out of stones. Yeah, exactly. Well, I can predict what's going to happen in the next segment, because I wanted to talk about two cars that also debuted this week, the Rolls Royce Ghost, I guess. There's still a market for that. And the Mercedes-Benz S-Class 2 ultra-luxury car. So we'll be back soon. Welcome back to the Total 
Car Score podcast. And uh, as I was saying, I wanted to talk about two cars that also debuted last week. Uh, and some of the cars that, I mean, they're not needed, maybe. They're not like really essential for anybody, but they make a lot of money with, with the manufacturers of these cars, the Rolls-Royce Ghost, which is the smaller of the sedans from Rolls-Royce and the Mercedes-Benz S-Class, the largest from Mercedes. So what do you think about those cars, Carl? Well, I think like you said, they're not exactly uh, necessities, but uh, we also know there's a big market for uh, non-necessities. So, uh, and I think the profit margin that you get with those cars Plus the fact that they've still got a parent company that makes, you know, necessities. In this case, Rolls-Royce has got the BMW group. So it's really an ideal situation. The same thing goes on with um, Bentley and Volkswagen group, right? These are brands that don't have to stand on their own, something that really can't be done anymore. Aston Martin's probably the last surviving brand, and they're slowly being kind of merged with Mercedes uh, and Daimler so that they can remain viable. But if you can produce these low-volume high profit vehicles and draw on the resources of a parent company to do the bulk of the production, you can end up with a nice branding and a nice kind of self-contained, highly profitable division that wouldn't be nearly as profitable if it wasn't part of a larger automotive group. Yeah, uh, obviously we have only seen video and pictures of the ghosts in particular. Uh, and those cars are fantastic. I mean, we all love have the the, the the opportunity to experience them. And Lauren, I want if you want to talk about why why a Rolls Royce is a Rolls Royce. I mean, what's the difference? Why the price is like half a million dollar for a car that I mean, basically does the same job as others. Right, but it's a hand-built car. It's about opulence. And if you look at the collectability of Rolls Royces, even the older ones have some significant value. They're custom-made. Um, they're totally what they call bespoke, which means you design what you want. I want a certain color, a certain interior, a certain option. And I think the one thing they did with the Ghost is instead of making it, you know, just more and more and more opulent, they decided to talk to their customers, which is a smart thing to do, which I wish every manufacturer would do, not all of them do, and say, what do you want? And their Rolls-Royce customers said, you know, we love all this high-end, elegant detail, but can we get something that has more minimalistic, something that still is Rolls-Royce, but is not overdone? You know, if they want the umbrella and the suicide doors, you know, so they open together from the middle. They want all that coolness, but they still want to have the performance and they still want to have you know, underneath. It's not so in your face. And they did that. And I think it's a beautiful car. Well, I'm looking forward to driving it. But, you know, when you drive those things, it's like driving a tank. I mean, you know, when you're driving that, you could drive a Suburban and the, or a Cadillac Escalade and get in that thing. And you're like, holy moly, this thing is heavy. It's solid. And it is silent inside. You made me remember the Volkswagen Fiaton. Like, what was called the Fiaton, right? Like that, that Volkswagen that People who had a lot of money but didn't want to be seen in a Rolls Royce wanted a car that had all these little toys inside but didn't look like a very expensive car. So like maybe this is like the reverse of that, I guess, or something similar to that, right, Carol? It is. And it's particularly popular when, for instance, economic circumstances are shifting. You know, uh, we, we all know that there's a various percentage of the population that is essentially immune to economic downturn. But that doesn't mean they're immune to you know, not not wanting to be bragging about it or advertising that. Nobody wants to, you know, in a, in a world that, where the economy goes south, nobody wants to walk around going, I'm still fine. Hoo -hoo. So uh, if they could 
if they can get a vehicle that gives them all the luxury they're used to and that they prefer, but doesn't hit everyone else over the head uh, with, with how expensive it costs, that's uh, desirable to people in those circumstances. And I think that's exactly what Lauren was describing with this new ghost is that they're just trying to have a really nice car that doesn't hit you over the head, that it's multi hundred thousand dollars. By the way, Lauren, you know what they're making in the factory in Germany where they used to make the Fiat, right? No, what are they making? Electric cars. <laughs> <laughs> because they're selling so many of them. You know, it's it, it's it's hysterical to, to, to listen to. They say everybody wants these vehicles. And of course, they're pushing them because that's part of, you know, trying to be green, et cetera, et cetera. But I think it's interesting to watch how um, consumers see it. They want to look at it, but they're not ready to buy it. I find that very interesting. A car that a lot of people buy, I mean, I mean, in, in in proportion, I mean, I guess. But the Mercedes-Benz S-Class is the most successful uh, large luxury car. And that car is beautiful. I think the previous generation and the one that they're replacing now was like really, really well done interior and exterior and all that. This new one, I'm not convinced. Again, I've only seen pictures and video, but the exterior doesn't look that attractive. And the interior, they went away from that large screen that went almost across the whole front console of the car. Now they have put, they put one in the middle, like it's like a cascading form, like kind of imitated the Tesla. I don't know, like, uh, what did you think about that car when you saw it? Well, I think you're right that, that they're always trying to kind of evolve the vehicles. You know, nobody wants to be called uh, static or, or, you know, too old school and, and uh, not progressive. So there's this pressure on every car company when they redo a car to do something new and different. And it takes a pretty brave uh, car company to kind of say, no, we like what we've been doing and we've, we're going to stick with it. Um, but I think a lot of times those are the ones that are the most successful. Look at something like the 911, which, you know, between the name and the proportions and the style, it's basically the same car uh, that it's been for like 60 years now. Um but it's tough to to do that. So you always feel this pressure to do something new, and you're always looking around. And if the S class is seeing these big waterfall, like you described, screens that go down and they're kind of a vertical, like holding your you know iPhone straight up and down versus sideways, and that's what's happening in a lot of other cars, then they're going to feel pressure to do that. I I don't like that personally. I agree with you because I always get annoyed when people want to shoot video and everything else with their iPhone and they hold it vertical because I always want to say, check your eyes, go look in the mirror. Are they on top of each other or next to each other? Okay. We see as horizontal. That's why, that's why, you know, surround sound systems and, and advanced, uh, what do you call it? The theater systems and all. That's why they have widescreen. That's why things are 16 by nine. That meaning 16, uh, parts wide for every nine parts tall, because we see widescreen naturally with our, uh, uh, you know, binocular whatever vision you know we see with two eyes next to each other well it's instagram that's why instagram is vertical that's or that's why everyone's thinking annoyed the hell out of me too it's like turn your phone sideways and then they then you would do that and then all the people be like no put it upright all those people who don't know that you should turn it back upright i don't like looking at it this way and it's like well your eyes trust me your eyes like looking at it this way whether you do or not right that's how you process speaking of from mercedes-benz the car that i've been driving this week is the mercedes amg gle 53 coupe which is combination between an suv a sports car a coupe uh, i don't know what like Honestly, like the design of it, like doesn't work for me, but I have to say driving it, it's amazing. Obviously it's like a super powerful V8, V turbo engine, uh, but I don't know. This is like, 
one of those cars that really nobody thinks that makes any sense, but they still make them and, 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 and they sell them, I guess, because they're still making them. Well, we're back to that idea of like, you've got to have something new and different. You've got to constantly be evolving. And so the car, a lot of the car companies are like, what's the next big thing, you know? And is it like these coupe SUVs, you know? And so there's the Cayenne Coupe, you know, which is new from Porsche, which tries to have still four doors and it's an SUV but it's got a swoopier roof. So it looks sporty and it looks more aggressive and all. And it's like, personally, I guess, you know, I'm not emotional enough. I still tend to be too right brain, whatever, but my, all I do is I look at it like, so it's an SUV that took away the U, right? You just, you, you, you made it. So it's not as, yeah, it's an SV. You took away the utility of the vehicle. Does it handle as well as a sports car? No, it sits too high. It's too heavy and all. So it it doesn't perform like a, a coupe. But you try to give it a koopy roof line so that it also doesn't perform like an SUV for utility. Okay, so you're left with a less perfor- lower performing sports car or a lower performing utility vehicle in one vehicle. Got it. Exactly. You know, I, I hear you. And I saw it. I have a Cayenne, an older one. And, and I looked at it and I went, it looks like someone stepped on it. Like it just got squashed. And, and I thought to myself, why would you make another trim line, another name for the same thing? That's just a little bit different. It sounds like they're trying to make a slice of a slice to try to get you to buy the same thing or buy a newer version. Because truthfully, my 2013 and my 2016 Cayenne look the same as a 2020 with some minor changes between the, each year. Right. I, I understand, Lauren, that you are driving something else this week that you can really tell immediately when you see it, like the Range Rover Velar, right? Oh, Yes, this is a Range Rover Velar SV Autobiography Dynamic Edition. I know Carl wrote an article about it. I actually read it. It was really well done, Carl. But uh, it was funny because I, I thought, wow, that's a mouthful. What are you driving? And you've got this whole jumble of, you know, nine, ten words. But one of the things I love it, you put it in race mode and you put the little helmet picture on, shut off the auto off, shut, turn on the exhaust. And I went out and I just launched it like you would a, a Porsche. And that thing just squatted and it sounded like a race car. It was really nice, but it, you know, it's, it's a supercharged engine, but even my husband drove it and he's, he's a professional racer. He goes, damn, he goes, that's one fun truck to drive. You know, how often do you get a vehicle like that? We get vehicles as everyone should know from really boring little compact cars that are like transportation utilities, you know, like it gets you from point A to point B to fun things like this. And I'm not going to say anything bad about the car, the car that Carl is driving this week, but I guess it's like completely opposite for the two of us. Right. Yeah, no, and I'm in the, the CRV hybrid, which is trying to be as you know functional and as practical as possible without any uh, necessarily sexiness built in. Now, of course, I, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of Honda. I've been a fan of Honda for a couple of decades now. And the reason is because they have a really great engineering team and they can make functional cars that are fun to drive and anyone who's really like savvy about cars and handling and dynamics and feedback all the things we're saying are going to kind of be you know uh evolved out of vehicles once we get into pure evs but we still don't we still have those we still have cars that have personalities and if you drive you know a honda versus a lot of its competitors everything from steering feel to ride quality and handling dynamics are very good and yet they still last a long time they hold their value well they're very reliable uh, they're very refined. So I like kind of the tuning of a Honda. So the CRV hybrid is not going to be any, you know, Land Rover, Velar, Dynamic Edition, et cetera, et cetera, uh, SV Autobiography. But it is going to be more fun to drive, even with the hybrid component, where it, which adds some electrification, than a lot of the vehicles it competes with. 
And, uh, I, you know, I think that's great. And, and by the way, yeah, did, if you read that article, uh, Lauren, you know, I made fun of, you know, how long that name was on the Valar. It was just like, really? You know, it's like, it is, it's like 11 words or something long as the official title. I know. And people go, what are you driving this week? Because everyone always asks me, what are you driving this week? I'm like, okay, right, let me take a breath before I give you the title. But I actually liked it. I liked it a lot. I mean, it, everything about it I thought was really fun. And as a daily driver, it was great. I wouldn't drive it in eco mode, but I thought they did a really nice job. And the processor is faster. Thank God. No, it's really well done. And the other thing, too, going back to what we were just talking about, is that car is essentially the Land Rover version of these performance coupe things that we're talking about from the other things. But it doesn't have that look. I mean, I love the fact that it's very performance-oriented. It's about as fast and, and performance-oriented as you're going to get on an SUV. And yet the roof line stays level from the windshield you know, header all the way back to the back uh, tailgate. So it's a functional roomy vehicle with rear headroom and cargo space like you would expect from a real SUV. And it looks better, too. It's funny. I don't, I don't even like the look. Like you said, it looks like you stepped on these other cars and stuff. So it looks better. It's more functional. It's got great dynamics. If, if you didn't have to, you know, uh, take a big breath to say its full name, it'd be a perfect car. Okay, Lauren, you win this week, <laughs> except for the name. <laughs> <laughs> the name was long, but I do like the vehicle. I mean, it is a big, it is a big SUV. I mean, if you really want something that big, and you know, it's only two rows, but you do get a lot. I think for the, I expect that vehicle to be well over a hundred thousand dollars, and it came pretty loaded. I don't think there was anything missing. It came in at ninety-eight thousand. Oh now, wow, that's a little amount. But overall, for what you got for yeah. value in that yeah. category, I thought it was really yes. well loaded and for a pretty good price considering. Well, but. but very interesting segment about cars that are already out there and cars that are coming. So in the next segment, we're going to talk about something that I'm sure everybody can relate to, which is the smell of a new car. I mean, I used to dream about that when I was a kid and everybody wanted to get that feeling, that experience. And uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about that because there's some stories out there that cannot be that good. We'll be back. Score podcast uh, for the final segment of this week's episode. And uh, as I was saying, we were talking about new cars. Everybody loves a new car. And one of the things that some people uh, love is the smell of the new car. I even remember that there were like some sprays, like second market <laughs> spray that you can put into your car, even though you're like an old one, can you can, can spray in the, the, the smell of a new car. Do you remember that, Carl? <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a great movie out there called Used Cars. Uh, with uh, Kurt Russell in it, uh, directed by Robert Zemeckis, same guy who did Back to the Future and a bunch of other successful movies, one of his early efforts, and uh, produced by Steven Spielberg. But um, in the very beginning, he's going through this uh, Buick uh, Centurion convertible trying to get it ready to sell. And at one point, you see him with this little spray can, that new car smell, and he's spraying it throughout the car, trying to make it smell like a new car. <laughs> I just referenced that movie, believe it or not, yesterday, because how you can make people say things that you didn't say. I don't want to give away the secret of the movie. It's been around forever. But I, I love the fact how it was like 
they said they have a, a, a we smile for cars something they turn the word into mile of cars but it, you know it's just interesting because that movie keeps coming up in reference so many times in just everyday life but it's a classic it's, a great it's one of those movie. you gotta see it if you love cars or not you're gonna laugh just you need a laugh that's a movie to watch yeah it's aged well but uh, speaking about the smell of a new car i mean i when i was a kid i remember when i was maybe eight nine years old my father got his very first new car it was an AMC Rambler, four doors sedan. Wow! That I crashed like within a week, <laughs> because I was learning to drive stick, and it had a shifting on the steering wheel column. Remember that? And for some reason, that car, in order to take the key out of the ignition, you have to put it in reverse. That makes no sense. That sounds dangerous. Or maybe my father made me believe that. I don't remember exactly, but the car was in reverse when I went to start it, and in our garage was not like one of the doors was not very wide so i he had parked there and i started the car without pressing the clutch so the car started going backwards and <laughs> against the column in like in the first week <laughs> but this it, it still smelled really good in the, in the interior because it was a new car but i uh, like and then they like there were some other cars that came along the way but uh that smell of the car is like really really beautiful thing but it also can go wrong I've been reading some stories recently uh, from Autoblog, Cars.com, that the Hyundai Palisade, the new SUV, and the Kia Telluride are having some problems with some of the materials used in the seats, in the, in the carpet, inside the car, that within some circumstances can give a really bad smell if it's especially under the sun for a long time or there's a little water so there can there can be a problem with a, a new car smell another one that i can remember is the corvette uh the previous generation that the the, the had these adhesives that they were using i don't know what was it but it smelled like really really bad plastic i don't know if you have ever had a bad experience with a new car with the, how it smells Actually, I haven't, but what it is, it's the chemicals off-gassing, whatever it is, the process to bind everything, whether, because remember, they're taking old water bottles now, and they're using them in the seat cushions, they're using them in airbags, and then that Palisade, and when they're talking about, they said it smells like spicy garlic cabbage, and I thought to myself, that sounds like kimchi, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, well, and it, and it's, I find that interesting, because, you know, I think all three of us have been doing this for a while, and I remember distinctly around 2000, give or take, when Hyundai and Kia were still fairly new to this market. And um, they actually, they've been around actually since like the late 80s, if I'm not mistaken, the 90s. But by like 2000, their cars were getting pretty good. Um, I remember the 2000 Hyundai Elantra and having it in a long-term fleet at, uh, at Edmunds when I worked there. And after a year, the car hadn't had a single problem, drove well, got good mileage. And we were all like, why would we not recommend this car over a Civic? In, in terms of functionality, sure, the reputation and resale aren't, aren't there. But as far as functional daily use for a year, how is this car inferior to a Civic? And one of the staffers said, the smell. And it, he was right. It, it, it didn't have a very good smell in it. And, it. and it wasn't always, it wasn't overpowering. You could dig in the car and be like, oh my God, this is terrible. But if it sat outside in the sun and it was a particularly sunny day and that off-gassing you talk about, Lauren, because that's what happens is that you heat up the interior of that car and all those adhesives that are holding together the seats and the dash and everything, they'll, they, you know, they, they, they maintain their adhesive. It's not like they un, un, unglue, but the glue will heat up and off gas and it'll output, you know, fumes. 
and the way that the car smelled was not good. Now, this was 20 years ago. I have not had a problem with the smell of uh, Hyundai's or Kia's for probably 10 or 12 at least years. I haven't even thought about that for well over 10 plus years. But it's interesting. When I heard this rumor about the, the new Telluride, I was like, ooh, that was a problem 20 years ago. And, and, you know, and now apparently it's not just happening randomly, but it's specific when it gets wet. So um, there's still an adhesive they're using in there. And under certain circumstances, just like 20 years ago, it, it doesn't smell good, apparently. Green new materials. That's why. That, that could be it. We're going to save the earth. We're going to ruin your experience in the new car. <laughs> your car may smell, but boy, we recycled a lot of bottles. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So another thing that happened this, this uh, week was the announcement of uh, the auto show in L.A. finally coming to sense and not canceling, but moving it to May. I don't know uh, how the summer of next year is going to line up, spring, summer, I guess. But now it seems they're going to be, we are going to be really, really busy between May, June, no, April, May and June next year, because it's like going to be New York, LA and Detroit back to back to back, right? And Chicago too. You got Chicago in there. Oh, Chicago. So you're going to have four major U.S. shows Back to back. I think what's going to happen is it's going to kill the little shows. Market one is New York. Market two is L.A. So between the two, they're going to take the bulk of what people are showing based on their market. So in L.A., you're going to see Ferraris and and all these hot sports cars because there's more money being spent there. And you'll probably see more green cars and and such in uh in New York, Chicago might just disappear. I mean, if they don't have the support they used to fly in journalists, I think that's gone and off the table as well. Um, from what I hear from my people. Um, so that kind of leaves Detroit left to do like trucks. I mean, and, and still they haven't had the Germans in their show for what, three years now? And they, they don't have Jaguar Land Rover. There's a lot of manufacturers that pulled from Detroit. So in their quest to be smart and move to summer, did they hurt themselves? Obviously they couldn't have predicted COVID and like this is what happened this year. They were going to have, they had like these huge plans to have all these outdoor activities in Detroit and all that and like we're all still in home, at home. Like nobody's traveling anywhere. But in LA, uh, Carl, it's interesting because, I mean, it's a huge market, as Lauren was saying, but uh, have you heard anything else? I mean, like they haven't made an official announcement, I, I, I don't think. But like pretty much the news is out there that it's, it's going to be moved to May and like we'll see what happens after that. What, what, what do you know from there? Yeah, I think we can call this an information uh, fail in that they didn't control the information and get the message out the way they wanted. So apparently nobody's answering any calls or emails to get more details, and yet everyone knows this has been this is going to happen. So somebody somehow escaped the uh, LA Auto Show uh, inner circle, and now you and I and uh, we're all talking about it. So, um, but I think it's smart because nobody thought they could have it in November, even late November, as they kept claiming they were going to. Everyone realized it's like that's just you know we're not going to be out of this mess by late November. And when are you going to kind of embrace that reality so that we can all plan when you're going to actually happen? Uh, and of course, as you both know, we do the North American car truck and SUV announcements. Uh, one of the announcements as we're whittling down from semifinalists to finalists, we would usually do at the LA show. And we had that all planned. And I kept telling the rest of the people on the board for North American car truck and SUV of the year, 
what's our backup plan? What's our plan B? Because I'm pretty sure we're going to be using plan B uh, when the LA Auto Show moves. And so we did have one, and now we're talking about what we're going to do. But we lost our opportunity to do the announcements during the show because the show just got moved, you know, seven months. Yeah, it's really crazy how this has affected us, uh, all of us. I mean, not only the automotive industry, but every every other industry. And like, again, I don't I don't know what's going to happen in a year or like two, but I guess we're going to keep seeing these uh, virtual presentations, uh, Zoom conferences, and all these things happening like remotely. And I don't know, it's not like the same, but I guess that's the only way we can do it, right, Lauren? Well, I think also you've got huge layoffs. I mean, Ford's laying off 1,400 people. A lot of uh, suppliers on our side are laying off people. And with all these layoffs, you start realizing they're cutting corners because of sales and profits. They go hand in hand. So if they have less money to spend, they're not going to spend it on press events. What you're seeing is a lot of, and we're all getting this, where they send vehicles to us. We're all jurors for the award. And so we each get vehicles delivered to us specifically. And I'm starting to see a lot of, like I just posted the Genesis GV80 and the G80 reviews, and they deliver them, and they sat there in the tractor trailer. They offloaded the cars. We got to look at them, and they loaded them back up and took off to the next juror. And I thought, wow. Does that cost a lot of money? It costs a lot less money than flying all of us into one location, you know, feeding us, housing us, letting us drive, and then sending us back and having their whole staff at, at one destination. You start looking at the total costs, and it's nothing to do that. It's probably smarter for them. And speaking about things that are smarter for them, I, there's another little piece of news that happened this week, is that GM and Honda are forming a new alliance to, to keep development, again, electric vehicles, but also internal combustion vehicles that that's going to start next year. And that's going to keep happening, I guess, among other manufacturers, because again, like with less sales, with less uh, profits and all that, all car manufacturers have to start like looking at different ways of doing things. Right, Carl? It's 100% true, Javier. And, and it makes total sense, like you said. I mean, especially when you start talking electric vehicles, the profit isn't there, right? They cost more to produce. And as we keep saying, there's less demand for them. So you end up with cars that need lots of help, like in China and to some extent, every country, including this one, to try to incentivize them and lower the cost to get people to buy them. Because people say, so I can buy this car for $28,000 with an internal combustion engine to get the equivalent electric vehicle. I got to spend thirty-eight dollars or $48,000. And if I got to refuel it, I got to spend between 20 minutes and eight hours, depending on where I can find it to charge it back up. So they've got to they've got to try to cut the costs of producing these cars because i keep saying electric vehicles will finally sell like like uh, internal combustion cars when they're just like internal combustion cars that means 2 to 300 mile minimum range that means 5 to 10 minute uh, refuel um and that means as as easy to fuel as common of fueling locations as uh you can get oh and and cost and they have to have the same cost so these are all challenges. Every one of those things I just said is not easy to do. But the cost one is easier to do when you have some kind of a merger. And also Honda, as I mentioned earlier in this podcast, I'm a big fan of theirs. But one thing about Honda is they're, they're a fairly independent small automaker. And so they're under pressure. You know, They aren't like a monster like Toyota or the Daimler Group or the Volkswagen Group. They're kind of an independent automaker. And as capable as they are, they're trying to compete on a global level with automakers that can spread their costs out much across much larger uh, volume of vehicles. So helping uh, helping their situation 
with a merger and joint research and development efforts through GM and other partners they've got is very smart. Well, we'll see what happens. My prediction is that next week you're going to be enjoying the CRV hybrid and I'm going to be enjoying the McLaren GT. <laughs> I don't know about you, Laura. <laughs> Oh, I don't have anything that nice. Now, come on. Hey, I'm getting a, I'm getting a Highlander tomorrow too. So come on, man. That's party central. Toyota Highlander. Woo-hoo. Keep adding the horsepower, and then like let me know when you get to like 500. <laughs> we'll talk. Okay. I've got a Cadillac CT4. I'll trade you. Thank you very much again. Like really interesting conversation. And I guess uh, next week and in the following weeks, months, and probably years, <laughs> we'll we, we will still be talking about where electric cars are going. So exactly. thank you for exactly. listening. Thank you for listening. For more, check us out online at totalcarscore.com.